We're going to continue our study in John tonight. Uh, Turn your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. And we've been looking at the glorious truths that John left for us in these final chapters. This glorious truth that Jesus is the true king who died and rose for us. In the last few weeks, we started with his Jewish trial with Annas, the high priest, and then we went to his Roman trial with Pilate, and then now we're going to finish his Roman trial. This is the second part of his trial, where Pilate is going to bring Jesus out and crown him. This is the king's coronation. It is a a bloody coronation. It is a painful coronation. Um, It is a humiliating coronation. It is nonetheless the coronation of the Lord of heaven and earth. And so we're going to read that together. Um, hear, the, hear God's word from John 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I found no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he, was, he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John recorded these words so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in them have life. So let's pray that God would help us find life in these words now. Uh, You might think that for sermon preparation, pastors spend hours involved in grueling translations of Greek and Hebrew, tedious reading of scholarly commentaries with lots of dust on them, and endless writing, memorizing, and rehearsing. Uh, And maybe sermon prep looks like that for some pastors. I do a little bit of that. Um, 
except for translating Greek and Hebrew. I don't do any of that. I read people who can actually translate Greek and Hebrew. But I do a little bit of that. But what I do a lot of on my sermon prep is walk my dog. So I'll, I'll take a passage like this and I'll read over it several times. I might even write out some verses on a card and then I'll take my, go- my dog and we'll go for a walk and I'll just meditate on the passage. Really try to, to soak into it and listen to it and, and let God speak to me through that passage. And so this week I was, I, I was reading this passage as I was walking my dog around the neighborhood and I was just struck by the violence of this passage. It is violent. It is horrific. What Jesus undergoes is is a terrible, humiliating, excruciating death that words can't even describe. It is violent. And at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking about this passage and the violence of this passage. I'm walking my dog down the street, and it is perfect. Just as perfect as could be. It had just rained that morning, so it was nice and cool, and I could feel this breeze on my face. And the birds were out now. They were chirping. The sun was out a little bit. So, you know, you had the, the warmth of the sun, but the cool breeze. And I've got my dog with me who just loves me most of the time. I mean, the most violent part of my walks are when my dog sees a squirrel. And he tries to, like, go after that squirrel. But he can't because he's on the leash. And even if I let him go, he would never get to the squirrel. He would never catch the squirrel anyways. He would just run to the tree, and the squirrel would run up the tree. And so he wouldn't catch him. So there's basically no violence, right? So as I'm, I'm taking my walk, I'm meditating on this passage. This, this thought hits me, like, why do we still need the crucifixion? Like, life is good. Life is perfect. Life is peaceful, right? Like, look at this. Why do we need such a violent, terrible passage? And I remembered life is not always peaceful like this. In fact, oftentimes it's not. And it's not because inside of each and every one of these homes is a heart. And inside that heart, there is a war going on for the throne of that heart. The throne, the the ruler of that heart. Who will be the ruler of every heart and every home in this peaceful neighborhood? And the question that that is raging is, who is the king? Who is the king of your heart? And as I read this passage, that that to me is the question that this passage is asking us. Who is your king? Who is the king on the throne of your heart? And so that's the question I want us to try to answer tonight. And we're going to, in this passage, we're going to see three different kings. We're going to see that Pilate has a king, the Jews have the king, neither of which are Jesus, and God has a king. As we study that, I want you to answer, who is your king? And I pray that we're going to see that God's king is the king that we want and need to sit on the throne of our hearts. Uh, Young listeners, you can listen for three things, a basketball star, a powerful ring, and a humble king. A basketball star, a powerful ring, and a humble king. So the first thing we're going to look at is Pilate's king. So Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He pronounced him innocent three times. He also knew that Jesus was dangerous. One of the other gospels tells us that his wife had a dream with Jesus in it, and she came to him and said, have nothing to do with this man. He's a righteous man, and I have had a danger, I've had a bad dream because of him. He also knew that Jesus was special. So 
After the chief priest came and said, he's made himself God, Pilate goes back and he asks Jesus where he came from. And that's because Pilate, like most Greeks, believed in demigods. They believed that, that humans could be elevated to some godlike status. And so he's, he's literally thinking, oh my, I've got a God on my hands. I might have a God in front of me. And he's probably heard all the stories about Jesus. And now he's got the priest saying he's making himself God. And so now he's got a God right in front of him. He wants to know, like, where did you come from? Pilate knew all these things about Jesus. And yet he still executed him. Why? Pilate had another king sitting on the throne of his heart. Who was it? Well, I think the answer lies in two places. I think first... It lies here when the people say, if you let this man go, you are not a friend of Caesar's. So a friend of Caesar's was an honorific title that you could earn back at that time. But you had to do something special to get it. Okay, And so there was a man named uh, Sejanus. I'm probably saying that wrong, but Sejanus had recently uh, Caesar. I'm sorry, Pilate was a friend of Sejanus's and Sejanus had uh, bestowed on him this honorific title that he was Caesar's friend. Well, Sejanus had recently been removed in rebellion, and him and all of his, uh, him and all his buddies had been executed. So when Pilate hears this, he could be thinking, oh my, like if this person, if this gets back to Caesar, that I've got this rebel and I've let him go, then they're going to find out that I'm no friends of Caesar's and I'm going to be a goner. So letting Jesus go would have been political and, and maybe physical suicide for him. The other clue, I think, is this, that uh, one of the other biblical accounts tells us that Pilate knew he was getting nowhere with this trial. He knew the people were about to riot. And so he decided to satisfy the people and give them Jesus. So I think Pilate had two, two kings that were sitting on his throne that caused him to give Jesus over, even though he knew he was innocent. And the first one, I think, is his work work was sitting on the throne of his heart. He had probably worked his entire career to get to this point. And he thought, here, if I let this guy go, I'm going to lose it all right now. And we can sympathize with us, right? Work is a place for us where we get our, our, our identity, our sense of purpose, and not to mention money and power in our lives. Right? Work is important to us. Secondly, I think the other thing that was sitting on his heart, and this is probably deeper, is this. That, that Pilate, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know Pilate's heart, but Pilate looks like a people pleaser to me. It looks like he is a people pleaser. And on the one hand, he is trying to please Caesar because that's what he's, his job is, and that's how he gets power and fame. On the other hand, he's got these people that want to execute this rabbi, and so he's got to find a way to please all these people, and the only way he can do that is by giving an innocent man over to death. And so that's what he does. He's a people pleaser. Now, a people pleaser is different than a people server. I want to make that distinction, right? It's, it's good for us to serve people. A people pleaser is someone who does everything they can just to placate people, even if it's harmful for them. A servant does what is best for the people. So sometimes to serve people, you have to say no, and sometimes you say yes. A people pleaser just gives people whatever they want. I think like Pilate, many of us struggle with people pleasing. The opinions of others sit on the throne of our heart. Think about it. Whose, whose voice is the loudest voice in your head? 
When you're you're in a moment of temptation or you're in a moment of trial, whose voice do you hear? That voice is the person that's sitting in that moment on the throne of your heart and that you're being tempted to listen to and follow. And I I think um, that voice could be approving you or it could be condemning you. But, but you know... It could be work. It could be approval for Pilate. But I think there's a crosshair probably where both those things cross. And I would say our work is where a lot of us try to get our approval and it's where we're looking for affirmation, right? Um, We tend to think that most of us base our decision, our beliefs purely on intellect. But what we probably don't want to admit is opinions carry a lot more weight than we want to admit, right? Uh, A few years ago, Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast called The Big Man Can't Shoot. It's on Revisionist History. Uh, It's pretty fascinating. But uh, he talks about in there a famous basketball star named Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Wilt Chamberlain was a great basketball player, but a terrible free throw shooter. His career free throw percentage was 51%. Well, at one point in his career, Wilt Chamberlain decided he was going to shoot free throws underhanded, granny style. So he literally is an NBA basketball player, one of the greatest of all time, shooting free throws like this. And in fact, in the game when he scored 100 points, maybe the greatest basketball game of all time, what people don't know is that he shot his free throws underhanded and made 28 of 32 free throws that night. That's like 87%. So a career 50% free throw shooter shot 87% for one night and scored 100 points. And right after that game, would he quit shooting free throws underhanded and go back to being a 50% free throw shooter? Later in his career, he was interviewed, and he said that he stopped shooting free throws underhanded because it looked silly, and he thought people would think he was a sissy, even though it was wrong. And Gladwell does, in Gladwell's fashion, he uses a story, and he goes and looks at all this research, and he shows that for us to change our beliefs, there's a threshold that we have to get over. And there's a threshold of change that has to take place. It's not, and it, that threshold doesn't just uh, require information, it requires approval. And if we think that we will not get approval and affirmation for making this change, then we won't do it. Will Chamberlain literally could have been unstoppable on the basketball court and he wouldn't change because he didn't want to look silly. How many of us in our lives will conform our beliefs or change our beliefs about Jesus, about our life, about our faith based on the opinions of others? Maybe you're here tonight and you're considering becoming a Christian, but you're thinking about all the voices of negativity in your life that will criticize you and rebuke you and condemn you. And so you won't let Jesus have the throne of your heart. Or maybe you're a Christian like me and you struggle with approval day in and day out and you want to make everybody happy. You want to be liked and loved by everybody and every decision feels like this turning point in your life where people will hate you if you make one decision or the other. In that moment, the thing that's sitting on the throne of your heart is approval. It's a desire for approval. That was Pilate's king. But what, and that sometimes is our king, but what is the Jewish king? 
It is, it is obvious from this passage that they are rejecting Jesus as their king, right? Pilate declares Jesus their king, and they shout, crucify him. And then they do something that is honestly mind-blowing. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about this. They were so delusional that they went from wanting to overthrow Caesar to now they're claiming allegiance to Caesar. They were mad at Jesus. They want to crucify Jesus because Jesus was not going to overthrow the Roman government like they thought he would. And they have gone from being mad at Jesus about that to now saying, we're going to crucify this guy and we're on team Caesar. Like, that's just crazy. Unfortunately, this is a familiar cycle for the Israelites, right? They, the very thing that they hated became the very thing that they worshiped. And this is not the first time that that's happened. Think back to the Exodus. God, you know, they're in Egypt. Pharaoh is using them and abusing them. And they cry out, Lord, please deliver us. God delivers them with a mighty hand through Moses. They get out into the wilderness. And what do they say? We want to go back to Egypt. What? And then, uh, you know, they, they want to go back to that cruel and oppressive way, right? Then they, they eventually, um, they're in the promised land and they want to have a king. And they say, give us a king like every other nation. And you're just like, the, you just had a king in Egypt and he used you and abused you. And God says, fine, go ahead, give them their king. They wanted to have a king like every other nation. Now, asking for a, a king wasn't totally forbidden, uh, but there were some warnings that came in with it, but there, the law made provisions for that. The problem was the king, they didn't want God to be their king. They wanted a king like everybody else. They wanted the wrong kind of king for the wrong reasons. And when they got that king, guess what? They hated that king. And then... As the, if you look throughout their history, you see they have good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, and their, their empire kind of fluctuates based on the kings. But what eventually happens is because of their kings and their hard hearts, they become the oppressors, and they're oppressing all the people around them, and they're worshiping all these false gods. So the very thing that they hated about Egypt as they go through their cycle is the very thing that they end up doing towards the end of the Old Testament. And here, I think, we see the same thing, right? They have rejected God as their king, and they have crowned their own God. Why? They wanted a king of their own making. They wanted a politically powerful king, right? They wanted a king that would exalt them above all the other nations, not humble them. They wanted a king that would bring vengeance on all their enemies, not forgiveness. They wanted a king that was going to accept their self-righteousness and not demand faith and repentance in Christ for righteousness. Their desire for power had corrupted them to the point that they became the very thing that they hated. You see that? Their desire for power corrupted them so much, they became the very thing that they hated. Uh, there's a, there's a, the Lord of the Rings provides a great illustration of this. Okay? In the Lord of the Rings, there's one ring of power. 
And everybody who has the one ring of power gets distorted by it. There's nobody that can have this ring and not be affected. There's one hobbit named Frodo He's the ring bearer, and it's his job to take this ring and throw it in the fiery flames of Mount Mordor so it's destroyed. And Frodo's the only one who can kind of wear it without it destroying him. But as you go through the story, you know, Frodo goes on this incredibly long journey to destroy this ring. And the whole time he's wearing it, it's his burden. It's wearing him down more and more and more. It's getting harder and harder. And there's times when he's tempted to put the ring on. And when he puts the ring on, then that ring changes him. We get to the very end of the story and and Frodo is at the point where he could take this ring and he can destroy it. This is the thing that he's been on the journey for forever. And what does he do at the very end? He says, this ring is mine. And he puts it on his finger. Not even Frodo could wear the ring of power without being destroyed by it. And that's a great illustration of of Christians, of us. Not even us. We cannot pursue power and privilege and pride without being distorted and destroyed by it. We will become the very thing that we hate. And it looks like this, right? It looks like this inside your home. You want to serve your spouse. You want to be a good husband. You want to love your wife. You want to take care of her. And so what do you do? You serve her the way that you want to be served. But she doesn't like that. Why? Because she's not you. And then she tells you that she doesn't want to be served that way. And you get angry. And so what do you do? You get, you get mad and you get forceful and you start stomping around the house. And pretty soon you look at, your, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, who am I? I've become the very thing that I hated in that moment. Or um, you're parenting your kids and you want them to love Jesus. And so you are going to micromanage everything about their life so that they can never sin and they can never struggle and everything is going to be great. And you know what? They don't like that. They don't like to be micromanaged. And what do they do? They rebel and they get mad and they push back against you. And what do you do? You get mad and you crank down on them and you start, you start threatening them and you're going to discipline them and you're going to send them in their room. And, duh, duh. and then you look at yourself and you go, who am I? The very thing that you hated, the very thing that you didn't want is the thing that you became. None of us can touch power without being destroyed by it. And none of us None of us can create a God of our own making without being destroyed by it. You see, if Pilate's, if you think about the Ten Commandments, if Pilate's sin was he made his own God, right? He made his God out of work and approval. Then I think the, the Jewish sin is the second commandment. The second commandment tells us to not make God into any image. And I think the Jews here, they had taken the second commandment and they created this image of God that he was this powerful political king that was going to come in and annihilate their enemies. And worshiping that false God distorted them to the point where they killed the Lord of glory and they swore allegiance to Caesar. So Pilate's king was work and approval and I think the Jewish king was power. Who's God's king? God's king is Jesus, and he's a humble king. God's king suffers 
Jesus experienced excruciating torture in this passage. Uh, He most likely suffered the most severe form of punishment that the Roman Empire could think up. And the Roman Empire was well known throughout history with being the most torturous, barbarous empire there was. And a crucifixion was the worst way to die. And this this flogging that he experienced, uh, one scholar put it like this. He said, the victim was stripped, bound to a post or pillar, and beaten by a number of torturers until later grew tired. And the flesh of the victim hung in bleeding shreds. In the providences such as Judea, this, task, this was the task of soldiers. In the case of slaves or criminals such as Jesus, scourges or whips were used. The leather things often fitted with a spike or several pieces of bone or lead joined to form a chain. It's not surprising that prisoners not infrequently collapsed and died under this procedure. This is what Jesus experienced before he went to the crucifixion. God's king is a humble king that suffers. If you're here tonight and you're suffering from pain, from sickness, from divorce, from loss, from abuse, from humiliation, God's king knows how you feel. He has experienced every form of suffering imaginable. He did it for us. Because that's the kind of king he is. God's king suffers and God's king submits. When Pilate said, you will not speak to me, do you not know that I have the authority to release you or crucify you? Jesus said, you have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knew that whatever power Pilate had was given to him by his heavenly father. And so by submitting to Pilate, he was submitting to his heavenly father. Can you imagine how humiliating it was to be the king of heaven and earth and to be stripped, flogged, beaten, and mocked by Pilate and his buffoons? And yet he submitted. Kids, I know it's hard to submit to your parents. I know that's challenging. But I want you to know that the God of the Bible knows how challenging and hard that is. And he submitted to his heavenly father even when it hurts. And he's calling you to submit to your parents even when it hurts. And I think you can trust him with it. Because he knows what it's like. And he's a good father. God's king suffers, God's king submits, and God's king sacrifices. When it says on here that Pilate brought out this stone pavement, and he sat on it, this place of judgment. And then it says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. It's really curious that John puts in there that it's about the sixth hour. right? That's not just some throwaway line. He put that in there because... Around that time was around the time when the lambs would be taken and slaughtered to prepare for the Passover sacrifices. So it was preparation for the Passover. For the Passover to happen, lambs had to be slaughtered. So around, think about this, around the same time that Jesus is being beaten and being prepared to go to the cross and die, at the temple, the priests are preparing the sacrificial lambs that are going to foreshadow the coming of Jesus to die for God's people and bring forgiveness. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And just picture this. You have this unrighteous judge on the throne about to sacrifice 
perfect, innocent Jesus. At the same time, you had these unrighteous chief priests, like literally the buddies of the guys who are shouting, crucify him, or at the temple, sacrificing the lambs that will foreshadow the coming of Jesus. Because Jesus is a sacrificial king. That he is here to give himself up for his people. He's here to give himself up for the very people that are shouting, crucify him. God's king is, suffers. God's king submits. And God's king sacrifices. Who is God's king? He is a humble king. He's a king on a cross. And that is good news. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, work is my idol. Approval is my idol. Work is my king. Approval is my king. Power is my king. Here's the good news of this passage. Is that Jesus died to pay for those sins. Paul tells us that through Jesus' suffering and submission and sacrifice, that Jesus canceled the debt against us. He canceled the debt for having other kings in our lives. He canceled the debt for your overworking. He canceled the debt for your approval idols. He canceled the debt for your struggle with power and control that drives you to anger and rage and rebellion. He died for that sin on the cross, and he canceled the debt that you owe. And not only that, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities of this world and triumphed over them. So you have this Roman ruler and you have these Jewish rulers. And at the very same time that they think they're killing Jesus and getting rid of him, he is doing the very thing that is going to triumph over them. By executing Jesus, they sealed their fate. And through his crucifixion, they were disarmed. And now he is the true king. He was crowned the true king of heaven and earth. So if you're thinking of uh, Lord of the Rings, if Frodo didn't throw the ring into Mordor, how did it get there? Well, Gollum showed up. Gollum's a bad guy. And Gollum and Frodo wrestled. And at the last moment, right as they're wrestling, Gollum bit off Frodo's finger with the ring on it. And as he bit off Frodo's finger with that ring, he fell off the cliff into the fiery furnace of Mordor and he died and the ring was destroyed. The the very thing that... (laughs) It's exactly what's happening to Pilate and the Jewish leaders right now. The very thing that they thought was going to destroy Jesus actually brought victory. Through his humiliation, he was exalted. Through his death, he was given victory. Who is your king? Is it work? If your king is work, then you may gain the whole world and forfeit your soul and be miserable in the process. Who is your king? Is it approval? If so, then every criticism is going to destroy you. And every voice that conflicts in your life is going to cause paralysis. And every bit of criticism is going to cause you to lose all of your sense of self and identity. Who's your king? Is it power? If it is, um, then eventually uh, you and your friends and your family and your community around you are going to be miserable. And you're going to be miserable because you can't control everything around you. You can't be the king. 
Like Tom Petty said, it's good to be king, but just for a while. Eventually, you'll make a mess out of everything. The good news of the gospel is that only God's king, Jesus, can free us from the shame and guilt of our sin and bring us into his kingdom so that we can be his kingdom people and we can experience his grace and kindness in the gospel. And then we give our whole lives over to him. We give him ourselves. Not to earn anything, but because he's already done it all. We surrender ourselves for him. One last story, and we'll close. Um, during uh, the Nazi, in Nazi Germany, when they were torturing and killing all the Jews, they had a policy that if anyone escaped, they would, they would execute 10 other prisoners. Uh, they would starve them to death. And so one night, there was a man who, who they thought escaped. He actually committed suicide. They didn't know that. They thought he escaped. So they brought out all the soldiers, or all, the, all the prisoners, and they lined them up, and they randomly picked 10 people to execute. And they got to this one guy, and they said, the last guy, they said, we're going to execute you. And he cried out, oh, my wife and my children. And at that moment, another man walked out, and he said, I want to die for this man. And they said, okay, we'll take you. That man's, that man's name was Father Maximilian Kolbe. And so they took Father Kobe and they took him, they put him with the other prisoners and they put him in a dungeon for 14 days. And for 14 days, they starved him and they starved these other prisoners. And at the end of 14 days, they needed to use the cell again for other prisoners. So they came and Father Kobe was still there. And so they executed him by lethal injection. Um, 53 years later, March 13th, 1995, the man that Father Colbe died for died. And for the 53 years after, after that day, he spent his entire life honoring the man that died on his behalf. And he said, this, this is his quote, this is kind of what he said, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic deed of Maximilian Kolbe. Father Kolbe gave his entire life for him. And so he gave his entire life for Father Kolbe. That's the invitation of this passage, is that Jesus has given his entire life for us to be our king. Will we give our entire life to him? That's the struggle of the Christian life each and every day is to wake up and say, Jesus, you are the king of my heart. Rule on the throne. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would help us do that. Please pray with me.